listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, the PuttCast. PUTT is a not-for-profit industry watchdog organization dedicated to exposing the truth about the shady, abusive practices of pharmacy benefit managers and how they affect American patients, healthcare providers, and taxpayers. On the PuttCast, we'll talk to pharmacy industry experts, influencers, and patients, always with the goal of bringing the truth, transparency, and solutions to America's prescription drug affordability crisis. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Monique Whitney. I am your host, and I am also the executive director of PUT, Pharmacist United for Truth and Transparency. And today we are talking about a new report that has been uh, published and distributed by PCMA, the opposition to our plan for PBM transparency. And I have two distinguished guests for our panel today. I'm excited to welcome Miguel Rodriguez, who is a frequent guest of ours. Uh, Miguel, welcome. Thank you. And I should tell everyone, Miguel is the general counsel for American pharmacies. Uh, We're really glad to have you because you are just recovering from being sick. So thank you so much for making time for us. I'll walk through fire and brimstone to get to this podcast. So very happy to do it. That's awesome. Thank you. And then we have a a guest. I'm also very, very excited to have Megan Delartino, who is the uh, managing partner for public policy partners. They are a lobbying and advocacy firm. Megan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me today. In the interest of disclosure for the people who are listening, Megan and I know each other because I work with uh, one of her teammates for some work here in Arizona and the Arizona Independent Pharmacy Coalition. So I happen to know Megan as an outstanding lobbyist. Um, but Megan, you are uh, not in Arizona right now. You are are joining us from across the country. So also thank you for being here today and for making time. Thanks. It was important enough to uh, pull over from our family vacation and join you. So thanks for having us. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, this this was a surprise, I have to say. Uh, we were just days ago really excited and celebrating that the FTC is finally taking some meaningful action on this question about pharmacy benefit managers and their business practices and how these practices may be impacting, among other things, the the cost of prescription drug medication, but also other other problems that are uh, being introduced, such as people's access to, to medication and access to medication that their doctors prescribe for them. So with the FTC having announced that they are engaging with the study and then finding out that the governor DeSantis in Florida of all places has uh, launched a new initiative uh, requiring greater transparency among PBMs in the state of Florida. We did not expect to see this working paper come out followed by not one, but two articles that were authored by uh, one of the, the authors of this publication. One was published in the wall street journal and the other was published in Forbes. Uh, So what this means and why we're talking about this for people listening is my background, as uh, many of you know, is in public relations and strategic communication. So as soon as I saw this coming out, my first thought was, aha, this is a PR offensive. Uh, It could only be that just looking at the timing and then the the high publication uh, placement of their opinions. But then I, I wanted to have 
the advice of two people that are experts and uh, whose opinions I respect. So Miguel and Megan, I, I want to just start by asking you in each of your experience, how do you define a PR offensive and how does something like this, this is clearly something that, that the opposition is investing money and time in, how does this affect uh, them, their image, what they're hoping to get out of it, and and our work trying to get transparency. And Miguel, I think what I'd like to do is start with you. Yeah, thanks, Monique. I mean, I think it is an obvious PR offensive. And I think um, the fact that it's so obvious is a demonstration of that it's a reaction to something. And we've seen a lot of different activity across the country at the state level, uh, state legislative reforms, uh, of course, you mentioned the Federal Trade Commission's activities. Uh, CMS has been digging into this and in, in the process of modifying its rulemaking with respect to DIR fees. Uh, there's been a lot of federal legislation. There's just a lot of activity in the PBM space and it is bipartisan. Uh, so that's something that's been very uh, unique in all of the big policy issues facing the country that you have a uh, widespread bipartisan support for reforming PBM practices. And it's a widespread in terms of geography and levels of government. Uh, it's been in the courts, uh, the Rutledge decision and several cases following the Rutledge decision. So I think what we're seeing uh, here and with respect to the op-eds, these well-placed op-eds and a, a funded white paper to, to back it up, I think are a reaction to try to get the conversation switched in a way that uh, is obviously to the detriment of the PBMs uh, under the current, you know, just the current uh, momentum is against the PBMs are trying to switch that and get the momentum back on their side. I definitely think they're trying to change the narrative, right? Um, which is why they're launching it right now. And they're scared. Their practices um, are under a lot of scrutiny. And so the only thing that they can do is to go on this PR offensive so that um, what's happening in Florida doesn't start taking hold in other states. And, you know, they're obviously, you know, the way that they do business, uh, their m money is on the line. And so the their only strategy in my mind is the one that they're launching currently, which is a PR strategy. So having said that, one of the things that I was interested in is the timing of this. I'd love to at some point talk about how PR and lobbying work together, but just right now, we're, we're coming up on midterms. It is highly contentious. There are other issues that have now pushed drug pricing sort of out of the spotlight. And yet here they are having put forward this paper and, and doing these, these op-eds. The timing seems kind of odd to me, but am I right about that? Or, or do you think there's a, you know, maybe like a strategic reason? And, and Megan, I'd love to get your perspective on that. I actually think it's good timing, and I'll tell you why. Always in the in the government relation world, we always talk about the year as seasons, right? And when you're in legislative season, or when the legislature is open and convening, um, is the time when organizations need lawmakers. The season we're in right now is when lawmakers need organizations and companies and constituents, whether it's to raise money or for votes, right? And so you have sort of this ear that you might not have otherwise during legislative session. And then frankly, it takes time um, for your message to resonate. And so you need to build 
at least, I always like to tell people at least four months before the legislative session, if you have a really controversial thing that you're trying to change or make sure it doesn't happen, is to constantly hit people with that message that, so that they're already primed going into the legislative session and it makes the government relations side of it that much easier. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, I, I, I'll defer to the expertise that you have in that area. And I, I would just also say, in my own opinion, that I think there's no time like the present uh, because the this last spring and uh, say the last six months has been a really just a drumbeat of what I would consider bad news for the PBMs and their bad practices. I want to just step back and say, I don't think that the opinion piece and paper are effective. Uh, I, I don't think they're effective in what they're trying to accomplish but it is a demonstration that, that they want to go big and high profile uh, in trying to switch the narrative in their favor in a way that I, I think they should have been doing a year ago uh, if I were them. And because I think anyone who was on the ground uh, as I've been, I know um, Monique, your organization is, is very grassroots oriented as is ours. You know, American pharmacies, we, we are a cooperative with membership in several different states, and we've been active in several state legislative efforts. And when you talk to the policymakers and you see that there's a wide array of understanding of the bad practices that the PBMs are engaging in, I, I wonder why the PBMs had not been out with a campaign like this a year ago or more. Uh, so I think it's a little bit late for them, but it's, it's an effort to start it somewhere. You got to start somewhere. But at the bottom line, I don't think it's effective. And I don't think it's effective because the PBM reform community, which is, includes independent pharmacies, obviously, but there's also a lot of other groups that are involved in this community, uh, have been focused laser-like on certain bad practices of PBMs. So as far as I know, there's not been any widespread legitimate effort to disband PBMs and, and just throw them in the heap. Instead, the reforms are very laser focused on particular bad practices. And, uh, and instead this uh, op-ed and white paper seem to act as if the whole industry is somehow at risk of going away. And they're, they're trying to demonstrate the value of a PBM as a whole when there's been no effort to eliminate PBMs as a whole, just certain bad practices that are harmful. And I think a more effective uh, PR campaign on their part would have been to try to counteract the specific PBM reforms that have been sweeping the nation and, and are being talked about in, at the federal level as well, and try to answer them on their own merits. I'm not saying they could do that, but they certainly uh, would be more effective if they tried that strategy rather than simply uh, trying to make a defense of PBMs as a whole. There's no legitimate argument out there that's trying to argue for uh, canceling all PBMs as a whole. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. I had the same thought when I was reading the paper and the op-eds. They seem to be fighting, they seem to be defending something that wasn't really ever on the table, this idea that we need to get rid of all PBMs altogether. Although, you know, I, I guess if they are taking some of the messaging literally about eliminating the middleman, perhaps maybe that is is where they were coming from. Politically, they did something interesting, at least in the Wall Street Journal, what I noticed is right out of the gate, there seems to be this almost like snide comment about, you know, congratulations, there's actually something bipartisan happening. It's blaming us, the PBMs, but you shouldn't be. And here's why. 
And then it goes on to, you know, to further make a kind of a snarky comment about, you know, we don't know why the conservatives are on board. I thought that was an, an interesting kind of strategy. Now, again, that could just be my interpretation and maybe, you know, what they are saying is, hey, there's finally bar bipartisan, you know, um, agreement. It just happens to be wrong. Uh, Megan, in your in your expertise here, what what kind of effectiveness would this sort of strategy have? I mean, did you get that impression yourself or did you see something different in the way that they were uh, approaching this message? Most people, like just the average everyday person, thinks that bipartisanness is a good thing, right? And so when I hear people try to bash on bipartisanship, really they're trying to message towards the fringe of either side, whether it's right or left. So I kind of thought that that messaging point was a little humorous. I will say that we're just in a time in politics where grassroots politics is really taking a hold because so many people have access to so much information. And so, you know, politicians really are interested on how policies affect their constituents, the people that, you know, live near them and vote for them and are their neighbors. And so, you know, the PBMs have sort of been taking this strategy of economics, but really economics only works or that argument really only works when it doesn't hurt people, right? When they're not trying to, to make a person into a number. And I think we're in a world where most people, especially in healthcare, really do want transparency. They want control um, over, you know, their access to healthcare and frankly, want to trust their their local doctors and pharmacists for making those decisions, not just somebody in a boardroom somewhere. And I and so I, I personally I think even though they're launching this PR campaign and clearly I think they're they're scared, they're definitely doing it in in the wrong way. I think this would be a good time to get into the paper itself. It's very um it is very dense. It is 45 pages. And it talks about some various things about uh, creating value. Now, I will be the first to admit that, you know, I, I am not the world's foremost expert on, you know, economics, for example. But I noticed that they used a term, to me, it, it appeared to be interchangeable with financial impact, although they certainly did not say that. They talk about the economic value of PBMs, and they did this throughout the paper. So they talk about, PBMs create 140, $145 billion in value annually. If PBM services weren't available, then employers would be forced to pay something like $58 billion to do these services themselves. Uh, then they go on to talk about how, because they themselves as an industry pay out something like $22 billion to do the services that they do, that somehow creates a, a $168 billion return to the system, or as they put it, a seven to one return on investment. I mean, it, it was the interesting numbers, in my opinion, not quantifiable, but again, not the expert here. Miguel, I was curious about what your take is here on what they're talking about. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that this paper, you know, uh, and it says right off the bat, it's uh, paid for by PCMA and it's uh, not peer reviewed. You can read a lot into that with that, those simple disclosures. And of course, the op-ed, which uh, was authored by, uh, in part by Mulligan, also discloses that, the, that both co-authors are consultants to the PBM industry. So I think the credibility of the paper right off the bat comes into doubt. But 
just from this, the way they're presenting it, as I mentioned before, that this it's trying to say, if we imagine a world without PBMs, look how harmful that would be. Okay, and, and so again, it's a countering an argument that's not being made. You know, no one is making the argument for uh, ridding the world of PBMs. So that, that's the first uh, fallacy. And um, the other parts of it, are, I think, are that it's sort of deaf to some of the many litany of issues that are popped up with respect to um, the way PBMs utilize their power to do a lot of the things, for example, rebates. Certainly a rebate, all else being equal, uh, could theoretically provide a benefit to re reduce plant costs. But the problem with rebates is that by asking for a rebate for the drug maker, the drug maker starts increasing the list price of the medicine. So in order, in order to pay for higher and higher rebates, the uh, drug makers charge higher and higher prices for the drugs. And so, you know, you need to account for the fact that every dollar, in fact, I, I was referring to uh, some great work out of the USC Schaefer Center. Um, one of the papers they had said, says that for every dollar increase in rebates, manufacturers raise list prices by a dollar and 17 cents. So it's not a net positive effect to have, for every dollar of rebate, there's a cost associated with it and it's not a net positive. Uh, so I, it's, there's a failure in this paper to account for all of the different other distortions to the negative uh, that the uh, PBMs have. It's as if they, you know, they're in some vacuum and those things don't exist. So I think there's a, a failure to examine the real world counter arguments and deal with them on their merits. And so I think that reduces in a great way the credibility and effectiveness of the paper. Megan, what are your thoughts? I absolutely agree um, with what was just said, and I'll just take kind of a little different spin so don't, so don't repeat anything um, on it. I think that really that's all that they have, right, is to look at this from a financial impact, um, which, you know, from our side of it, I think we could kind of turn that on its side and talk about the financial impact of allowing some of these things, uh, bad practices to continue, right, are super harmful. They're super harmful to small business, which would have a negative thing. If we, if we allow them to get away with this and we don't change these bad practices, right? There's a financial impact to the small businesses. There's a financial impact to patient access and care. And I just think we're in a time where it doesn't even matter if it's healthcare or shampoo, right? We're in a time where everything, people are really looking for a sort of personalized whatever, right? Name the product. And healthcare is, is one of those. Not, not unfortunately for us, but unfortunately for PBMs, they're trying to get away from that personalized um, healthcare, right? They want to, you know, capture all the patients. They want to steer them into their direction. They want to integrate. And I just don't think that ultimately that is a good message that is going to resonate with policymakers, which is what they're finding um, across the country. And so the only thing that they have to go for is, oh, here, here's a shiny penny. Let's look at the economics of it. But I think there's so many other arguments from our standpoint of, of economics as well um, that we can show. And frankly, what I think we have going for us um, is that we really do have sort of that grassroots network through you and others and doctors and pharmacists and so on and so forth. Obviously, we don't have 
same amount of money that you could put in um, to a campaign or a paper um, like that, but we have so many more resources and bodies that um, truly have a personalized interest with lawmakers that, frankly, I think makes a greater impact than that paper does. And I appreciate you saying that because one of the things that I think sets independent pharmacy apart is because these are healthcare providers who are independent they have access to information that some of these larger chain retail pharmacists, you know, who work for a pharmacy that's owned by a PBM like CVS, for example, they don't necessarily have access to the information. They know something's not right, but they don't, they're not able to perhaps articulate it, or, or maybe if they do understand, they're not able to articulate it as well, because of course, you know, who they work for. But I'm, I'm happy to hear that grassroots advocacy is taking hold because one of the frustrations that I know people listening to this podcast and, and uh, providers in other disciplines besides pharmacy have is you just are never going to outfund an opposition with members like CVS or, or Optum or you know Express Scripts. These are very, very, very large insurers and they hold so much of the market. So many of the prescriptions in this country are processed just through the, the three big PBMs, Caremark, Express Scripts, and Optum, that it, it's sort of like, how, how could anyone hope to, to stand up to that? So, so I'm encouraged by that, and I, and I appreciate that. One of the things that I, I, I fear, though, and I'll, I'll just ask this, and, and it's please feel welcome to correct me or, or redirect, but I think one of my fears is that when I see something like this come out, it looks, just because it's a 45-page paper, and it has an accompanying set of takeaway points, and they throw a lot of numbers around, it looks like it says more than it actually does. And I think my fear is that lawmakers or regulators who are busy, you know, they're, they're, they're not just dealing with, you know, healthcare, they're dealing with all the issues that the constituents bring to them. My fear is that they'll look at something like this and they'll start to second guess the evidence that we've brought forward. Because one of the things, of course, that we do is we don't just show up and say, hey, this is wrong. We show up and we bring you know, direct evidence of the, the very, you know, practices we're talking about that have become so harmful. Am I, am I wrong to think that they might, might be misled by this information or just, you know, quickly skim it and go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll yeah. let either yeah. of you answer. I, don't think, I was just going to say, I don't think you're wrong at all. Um, I think that you're absolutely right. I do think that there is a host of legislators, probably more majority than minority, um, which will take just you know, talking points from people they trust, you know, and maybe they don't, um, what that's a lobbyist, right, or, or whomever it is, and they don't dive into it, which is why we, you know, which is why you guys have sort of that government relations uh, presence is, is because there's got to be people on the other side that they equally trust that'll make sure that they take that time. Um, I know, you know, in Arizona, that happened a little bit uh, this year with a legislator. And, you know, even though, we might not have gotten him in committee. We haven't stopped talking to him. And frankly, I think if the bill was performed today, he probably would be with us where, you know, two months ago he wasn't. Because I think that legislators naturally just say, you know what, I don't have the information, so I don't want to change anything. I, I, know, what's, I know what's going on right now, and so I'm just going to leave it. Um, especially during legislative session, it, it becomes really hard, which is why I, 
you know, I said earlier in the podcast is like when I tell clients, if you really want to go for something and it's something big that, you know, you're going to have a lot of opposition that you do have to start this PR campaign and information campaign that gets in front of them because you're going to have, they're going to have to see it multiple times. But because once you get into session, the pace is just so fast that you're just not going to have that same sort of, they're just not going to have that same sort of time that you have right now. And then the second thing I would say that you all have going for yourselves is that you are independent, you are local, you know, people love their neighborhood pharmacies. And I had multiple legislators this year say, oh, let me call my doctor, let, you know, in, in my district, or let me call whether it was something on healthcare, let me call my restaurant owners. They really do love hearing from the businesses and constituents inside of their community. And so just building up that arsenal, because I know we don't, we won't be as well-funded as the other side, but building up that arsenal so that we can quickly deploy them during legislative session would have more impact than what the other side is doing. If they just get 10 emails, right, from like true emails from their constituents, that is amazing to them. They don't hear from that. And then they start second guessing, oh, wait, wait a second, I've heard this information and there's this study out here, but what I'm hearing from, my, from the people in my district is opposite. And they're going to go with the people that they know inside their district every single time. Yeah, I want to pick up on that grassroots and the power of grassroots. I, I think the... I would rather have a legislator go into a local pharmacy and talk with a pharmacy owner about their business, their way they treat their patients and the uh, concerns they have than read this Wall Street Journal article. Uh, I think that's far more effective in terms of what needs to be communicated in an issue. And and that's free. It doesn't cost anything. If you can get a, a legislator to come into a pharmacy owner store and take some pictures, look around, see how patients are cared for. That is the the value of that. Just you can't put a a figure on it because it's just so impactful. And uh, as Megan said, I've seen that so many times on important uh, PBM reform legislation where a legislator says, well, I'm going to call up a person that they know that's in their hometown that owns a pharmacy, and they're going to ask him about these issues. Is it, does this sound like this is going to fix the problem that they're facing. And and those are the experts that they rely on to help them make their decisions. So that's a far more effective way of communicating these things. I I do want to say also that that I think there's another audience for this article beyond just policymakers. And I think part of the audience that the PBMs are trying to reach are business owners with health plans. I think they're trying to win over as allies in the legislative arena, business owners who they can scare into thinking that if PBM reforms pass, that healthcare costs will increase. And they want them to be their allies at the Capitol because then they can have a local constituency to counteract the healthcare providers, which are very much allied in favor of PBM reform. So I, I think part of this, you know, these articles in the Wall Street Journal and in Forbes, are trying to create a communication avenue to the business owner community to to strike fear in their hearts that somehow healthcare costs will increase if the PBMs aren't saved. So uh, this portrayal as victims and uh, that the sole defenders of reduced healthcare costs, I think, is a avenue to try to get allies where they don't 
currently, I mean, they have, you know, they've, they've been successful as I've seen of getting a, at a high level, the business community on their side, but maybe they're trying to build a more uh, robust business owner community on their side. I think you make a very good point. And that has been, I know, a, a source of frustration for not just us here in Arizona in some of the work that the Arizona independents have been doing, but but I know for PUT members and independent pharmacies across the country where you, you are advocating on behalf of a patient, there's very real things that are happening, practices PBMs are engaging in that are not good for the patient. They are costing the plan more money. And then you're there with all this evidence and information, you know, to show the point you're trying to make. And then here come like the chambers and the unions and the business organizations, you know, saying like, no, 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 it's you're wrong. And then they, there is sort of this case of like, they're defending something and they know not what they're doing. And it's so difficult to try to land that message over with them. Like, wait, stop. If you could just wait a moment, let us show you what we're talking about. But to your point, I, you know, I think you're absolutely right about that as well. I would agree. And I think you've kind of seen them sort of take over by the state chambers and some of the, even the bigger, um, you know, local chambers. But when you get down to like more of the, when I say bigger local, like, I mean, like the Phoenix chamber, right. But when you get down into a lot of these little towns or individual towns that also have the chambers, you know, your local uh, independent pharmacies could get into there and, and make that case of, look, look, we're not trying to get rid of them, right? We're just trying to get rid of their bad practices and practices that, that frankly take away control from your patients. And ultimately, you know, your employees, you know, ex-business um, being happy with their health care and being able to take control and go where they want it is going to make for a better, more productive employee at the end of the day. And so, you know, I never think we're going to probably win the argument from like a statewide chamber perspective, because there it's just really, uh, you know, you have enough money, you kind of money wins the day um, to play. Uh, but some of the more local community um, chambers and businesses is where, where we could get some of them on our side. That's great, Megan. Thank you. And when you said, when you just made that comment about the chamber and, and the money, my, my heart just jumped like, yes, that's been my you know personal experience. I know that's the experience of so, so many of, of us out there who are, you know, advocates, independent advocates, uh, just trying to, just trying to share the information. I, and, and in fact, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking it would be wonderful to have you both come back and maybe talk at a future time about what could we be doing better to try to develop the relationships inside some of these chambers because, you know, they are also being affected by this. They may not realize they're being affected by it, but they're certainly being affected by that. I feel like I've got so many questions. I've got an attorney and I've got, you know, a lobbyist, you know, two people who are, you know, just very, very, very good at what you do out in the world. Uh, but we only have a few minutes left. So I think, um, Megan, I'd like to ask you one real quick question, then I'll then I'll end as I usually do by asking for your advice for our listeners. But I'm just kind of curious. Uh, there are so many, you know, myths that exist out there about about lobbyists and the work that you all do. And I I just love to get your your perspective on the work you do, and if there's just you know any any of the things that people you know, like generally think about when they think of a lobbyist that aren't true. If there's anything you just like to dispel or set the record straight on. I just would love to give you the opportunity to do that for, for all of us who are listening today. 
That's like my favorite question um, because we really uh, are just advocates, right? We're no different than anybody listening. The only difference is that for my job, I'm going down there to, um, in this case, right, represent um, independent pharmacists because those independent pharmacists can't take time away from their business to go down to the Capitol and meet with 90, you know, members of the legislature and attend every, you know, health committee or any other committee that a bill may um, get assigned to, right? Because that's a full-time job. And so people just don't have the time to do it. And so they hire those like myself and Diane, uh, who works on, on these issues to go down there and really be their voice. I mean, that is all we are. And as I try to tell legislators all the time, there's so much information that's at their fingertips, that they should never go into anything uh, thinking that they don't have enough information if they want it. And it's our job just to present them that with that information and hopefully make the best case. And it's their job, you know, to sift through it and, um, and see if they agree with it or don't agree with it. Um, so I think sometimes the word lobbyist uh, gets a bad, bad rap or bad name, but really all we are is advocates um, for those that just simply don't have the time to get down there themselves because they're running their own business. That's well said. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, we are coming to the the end of this episode and it has been a real pleasure talking with both of you. And you've certainly sparked a lot of thoughts for me as someone who is out there, you know, having these conversations myself and advocating on behalf of, of myself as a patient, but also for the independent pharmacies that are PUP members and friends. What advice would I'd love to get your opinion on this. What advice would you give our listeners? And Miguel, I'll start with you. Um, with regard to either this paper that's been published or just when it comes time to, you know, talk with a legislator or, or a decision maker of any kind, what would you want the listeners to uh, take away and know that would make them uh, either more confident or help them, uh, you know, I'm not saying this well, um, more effectively, I guess, share their message about what needs to be done or what needs to change? Yeah, I, first of all, I wouldn't be intimidated by the paper. The The most effective way to communicate about these issues is directly, and, and the, those with the most direct access are actually uh, the pharmacy owners on the ground talking to their own legislator. And so I would, I would start there and just feel confident that uh, that personal story is way more effective than just a, a 40 something page paper that uh, most people will work their way to read the whole thing of. So uh, I would start there. Then I would also say that there's a lot of other research that counters these arguments as, as a whole. And I'll just point generally to the USC Schaefer Center, which there's uh, researchers there. One's Aaron Trish, Dr. Aaron Trish and Dr. Uh, Karen Van Nice, And they both have authored some fantastic uh, research in this area that counters in a very a neutral, you know, not funded by PCMA or anybody, any interest group, but from a neutral perspective, uh, has analyzed the effects on patients and plans and cost the costs of certain bad practices, and is very effective and is coming to some fantastic conclusions, which uh, demonstrate for real reform is needed. Uh, so I think there's a lot of research on our side that we could throw back at any policymaker that's going to be uh, favorable. And, and I think fundamentally, the messages that we're trying to convey are really, they're winners. And that's why there's such widespread bipartisan support. We want to level the playing field. We don't want 
to be favored. We just want a level playing field so we can compete for patient access, uh, so we can win the customer over with the value of our, the pharmacy services that pharmacies can provide. Uh, we want to give the patient the choice where they want to go. Uh, so we're not against mail order. We're, we're only against mandatory mail order, the, the forcing a patient, making the, uh, to, to go somewhere where they don't want to go. We're against conflicts of interest where the PBM owns the pharmacy, uh, where the PBM can dictate uh, where the patient gets to go and forces them to go to the pharmacy that they own. Uh, so these are all common sense reforms and areas of, of uh, argument that are just winners because they're things that anybody in, who's gone through kindergarten would know because this is just a matter of simple fairness. And, uh, and so these are very uh, great arguments to have. And I'm glad we're on that side and not on their side, trying to obfuscate with these papers, which are missing the mark. So I'd say feel, stay confident. Uh, don't worry about the money. Don't worry about the papers that they're trying to cloud the issues uh, and keep your foot on the gas pedal because they are worried. That's why this paper is out there. And we got to make sure they stay worried. So uh, keep the foot on the gas and keep out there uh, increasing activity and advocacy around the country. That's awesome. Well said. Thank you. And Megan, what about you? What advice do you have for our listeners? I just say get involved. I know sometimes people think it's scary uh, having to talk to their legislator, um, but I got to tell you, they love hearing from people inside their legislative, which is probably uh, the thing that that really can convince them the, the most. So, you know, pick up the phone, send the email, get to know your legislators. It's how you can have the most impact. Thank you. That's just perfect. That's that's what we say here at Putt, and you just echoed that. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. All right, well, Miguel and Megan, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today and for everyone listening. Thank you for joining the podcast. The, the paper and the takeaways will be available on the Putt website, truthrx.org. In the meantime, everyone take care and we'll see you next month.